Welcome back to Confabulation, the podcast. I'm Matt Goldberg. And I'm Deb Vanslet. I'm so excited for this one. Um, we have a story from Michelle Lux. You, I'm going to say you have the story, Deb, because you conducted the interview. You re-recorded the story with Michelle. Uh, this is a story that goes way back to December 2013 from a family's event. Were you there for that one? I wasn't there for that one. No, I was away. I was out of the country, so I missed that. But I, I did, of course, understand the, um, the premise of the story. We're hyping it up. We're, we're really building the hype. Because what, what was really remarkable about this story in the, in the moment uh, Michelle and her daughter Chloe had approached me about telling a story from two sides. And this has been an idea that has excited me for a really long time. Um, the subtitle of the show, the catchphrase of the show, Stories True as We Can Tell Them, the title of the show, Confabulation, acknowledges that memory is subjective and that memory transforms based on who is experiencing the memory, how we remember it. And they wanted to share this twice-told story, this story from two very different perspectives, that of the mother, that of the daughter. And I'm so glad that you had a chance to re-record it because our stories from 2013, uh, they don't always hold up. They don't always have the same recording quality that we like nowadays. No, 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 no. And I think there was even a technical problem there where it wasn't even recorded. Yeah, so we'll listen to Michelle's story. We don't have Chloe's story. But then I interview Michelle about the different points of view. The different perspectives. Sounds good. Take it away, Michelle. It's 2002, and I'm driving with my husband to pick up our daughters at the first after the first year of summer camp. The day's warm. We get on the 40 going east towards Trois Rivières. And we talk about the most mundane things on this most unusual day of lasts. The last time we drive in a car together, last list of tasks, last list of groceries, and first, telling our daughters that we're getting a divorce. How did we get here? Let's start at the beginning. It's 1986, and I'm traveling in Asia. I've been here for six months with a backpack and my Bible. (laughs) Actually, it's my travel Bible. It's the new version of Lonely Planet, and it is amazing. And right now, I'm in Pushkar, India, which is a beautiful town in the desert. And I'm staying at a place that Lonely Planet called a hidden oasis. I, I know most of the people here because I've seen them at lots of other places all through Rajasthan, including that cute guy over there in the corner playing guitar. He did the same thing at hostels in Jaisalmer, in Jaipur, and I don't know whether he is aloof or shy, but that night, I see cute guitar guy at the same rooftop bar, and I find out his name is also Michelle, and he's from Quebec, Canada, 
But conversation does not flow because his Saint-Jerome English is even worse than my Baltimore French. <laughs> he has just called his beer an interesting situation. <laughs> but he's kind of charming. And the next day, he invites me, he finds the words to invite me for a chai in the bazaar. And as we check out the silk stalls, our hands brush. <laughs> I try on sandalwood oil, and he smells my neck. <laughs> and when we kiss by the flower stalls, my heart beats so hard. But it's kind of a bittersweet kiss, because I'm leaving the next day. I, I already have a train booked for for Bombay. So it's bittersweet. But time has a funny way of dilating when you travel. And sit the 16 hours that are left stretch before us with possibility. We go to the desert and we hold hands as we, as we watch the sunset. And we go back to that rooftop bar and we have spicy pakoras and beer. And at the end of the night, we sneak our single mattresses up to the roof and we push them together to make a big bed under the stars. And the smell of rose and the smell of jasmine waft up as we kiss. And, and we can't talk because I really can't understand anything he says. <laughs> But we hold each other so tight all night long because we think we'll never see each other again. And in the morning, we're heartsick. So we come up with a plan, kind of in half English, half French. I will meet you in New Delhi in three weeks, 5 p.m., 5R, 5R, New Delhi. And I find a place in Lonely Planet. It's the uh, Highlight Hotel. And Highlight Hotel, Sankar, New Delhi. Three weeks later, I take a train for 32 hours from Bombay to New Delhi. And I am so uncertain and confused. Is this crazy? I've known this guy for 16 hours. And then I get to New Delhi, and the Highlight Hotel is completely overbooked. Thank you, Lonely Planet. So I write him a note. I say, Michelle, this hotel was completely overbooked. I, I, I'm, I'm the person that you met in Pushkar. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't know your last name. And, and I give him the address for the new hotel. And I feel like such a fool putting that on the bulletin board because I don't even know if he's going to show up. But at 5 p.m., there's a knock at the door. Michelle has traveled 24 hours from the Pakistani border to meet me. And he is completely bleary and rumpled. And he smiles, and I smile, and then he says, this is an interesting situation. <laughs> and it's perfect, because it really is. 
I don't remember anything from New Delhi except the inside of that little hotel room. But we did learn a few more words in each other's language. And then we decided we're traveling together. So I leave my copy of Lonely Planet on the bed because I'm not lonely anymore. And we travel with his guide de retard through the rest of India. And that is the beginning of the story of Michelle and Michelle, the two M's. And that story has so many chapters and includes travel in India, Burma, Thailand, a bus accident on the Malaysian border, reunion in New York, a secret marriage, a clandestine trip to Quebec, two beautiful and happy and well-adjusted daughters, and two renovation jobs, and with the endless, endless, endless plaster dust, tears, anger, and two people moved to two different bedrooms. And 15 years after we meet in New Delhi, and we find that tiny, cozy hotel room too large, we find our three-floor house too small. And the only way that we'll be happy is to get a divorce. We never yell at each other in front of our daughters, but my 11-year-old daughter, Chloe, knows. She's asked me several times, Mom, are you getting a divorce? And I have completely lied. Why, Chloe, why would you think that? Because Good parenting said, until you have a solid plan, don't tell your girls. But what is a solid plan for a divorce? Psychology Today said, well, you make sure that your children know that you will never leave them, and also that it's not their fault. You'll know when the time is right. You'll know when the time is right. When is the right time not to completely upend their lives? We can't tell them before school's out because their grades would go down. And we can't tell them before Cammie learns to ride a bicycle. Wouldn't that keep her from developing physically? (laughs) Well, we can't tell them before Chloe gets braces. But some of our friends know now, and we're really afraid that they're going to tell their kids before our girls know. So we come up with a plan. We're going to tell them the night they get home from their first year of sleepover camp. We will make everything they love. We'll have pizza, spaghetti, um, we're going to have sushi, french fries, Caesar salad, and we will we'll set the scene, we will tell them, and we will be together in telling them, and we'll tell them, girls, we have something that is going to be kind of hard for you to hear, but first, we want to tell you that we will always love you forever, but we don't love each other anymore. And so we're moving to separate houses. And then we'll serve chocolate fondue. (laughs) Because it's their favorite dessert. All right, I know it's not a good plan. But our house is about to go up for sale. 
the for sale sign is going up that week. Michelle and I get off the 40 and we head past Shawinigan towards the Parc de la Marici. We take a little gravel road to Camp Minigami and I feel every bump in the pit of my stomach. A counselor, a lone guy playing guitar greets us at the dusty parking lot and he looks a little bit like Michelle when he was younger. And there's another counselor, she has a map and she says, go to the lake, they're having their last campfire. We walk together on an uneven path towards the lake past tableaus of happy families reuniting after, after weeks apart, and through all of the smoke and, and the, the, the heat waves coming off the fire, and looking out at a hundred campers swaying and singing in unison, I spot the girls, and they've got their arms around each other, and they are so, so, Filthy, oh my God, it looks like they haven't washed in two weeks. <laughs> They're going into the bath when they get home. And then Chloe sees us, and she points us out to her sister, and they both wave. And I look over at Michelle, and a tear drips down his chin. This is going to be so hard. We hold hands for a last time, and we watch the girls sing with abandon. And I, I, I take a mental picture of the before. Before we break the news that will change their lives forever. Welcome to the show, Michelle. What was it like for you to listen to Chloe's perspective on your divorce? I had the chance to work with Chloe on the story. So the night of, it wasn't a surprise, but just an outrageous pride at hearing her talk about something that she'd gotten through, but that had been so difficult when she was 11 years old. Um, and uh, it was also so wonderful hearing the audience, like many of whom probably had gone through something kind of similar in their youths, go along with Chloe, like listen to the story and, uh, and identify with it. Um, and what was interesting is that we put that in the first half of the show. And my story, which was actually a lead up to Chloe's story in the second half of the show, so they first heard Chloe and a, a perspective that was like a strong girl leaving camp, um, hearing at a, a dinner where we had served them a, a very weird assortment of food because we wanted them to have everything that they loved when they heard something so awful. Uh, and then her ending up under the table with her sister, really sadly crying like a baby. It, and that's how the story ended. And uh, in the second half of the show, without announcing to the audience what was going to happen, I started my story, which really started before that in time. Um, and it was our 
figuring out how to tell the girls that we're getting a divorce, um, which led up to the moment that Chloe's story started. And it was only in the very last seconds that the audience realized when we were at the summer camp and, and walking towards the fire that these stories were connected. And for them, that connection was both audible, like in terms of like, what? Like, oh my, ah, realizing that that we were mother and daughter and, and that the stories were connected. Um, I also think for Chloe, it was probably kind of a catharsis that she was able to not talk about it objectively, but to to really put it in its place of a really painful event. Um, but the chance to figure out how she wanted to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Hard stories aren't hard to tell just because they're emotionally charged and in that way difficult, but they also can present ethical issues in terms of the fact that we're telling stories about people that we know, people that are are close to us. How do you manage that particular challenge or dilemma? I, I think it really is all about time. For sure, um, when I got divorced more than 15 years ago, I was not ready to, to talk about it or to tell stories about it. It was still uh, a wound. Um, and I, I think, you know, that is kind of what's important. And it's something that we like talk about even when we teach Story Lab is the difference between scars and wounds. Like if we're able to see that a little more objectively, if we're able to, to, to find even some, albeit dark humor in parts of it, um, we're probably closer to being ready to, to share a story. So, um, I mean, for sure, when a story involves somebody else, which our stories do, we also really have to think about what we're saying and how it would impact that person and shift our story accordingly. Yeah, I think, um, and for me, sometimes as I'm writing something or considering something, it's also about what I'm revealing about people in my life that perhaps I haven't really even talked to them about. It's my own memory or my own version of that truth for me, which may not have the corroboration of anybody else and can therefore be a little contentious. True. And so as you're working on that story, it's both like working on a story and imagining that person listening to that story. And granted, we'll all have different ideas of any event that happens. But will that person feel okay about what we've chosen to reveal in that story? So I mean, I was, as I was telling this story, really thinking about my ex-husband and um, ensuring that I was kind and similarly that, uh, that I was telling a story that although he might not agree with all the detail, um, he would be, he would feel okay about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I think our confabulation tagline is the best one out there.
stories true as we can tell them. That really sums it up. And, you know, that's become a big part of our um, story lab is really that idea of thinking about the the truth and the, that, that it might, for instance, not have happened that uh, someone's father uh, smoked a pipe at that particular event, but his father often did when he was making a decision or when something was about to happen or um, that, you know, you were wearing your favorite red dress when you were four years old during uh, during that recital. Um, but the, the, if that become if that was an important element and that ends up being part of uh, something that helps us enter the audience, enter the story and you to tell the story, um, that becomes an important emotional truth. Well, Michelle, it has been a pleasure talking stories and truth with you. As with you, Deb. Thank you, Michelle and Deb. <laughs> I'm really glad we could do this. I It occurred to me, listening to the story again, how... My relationship to this is uh, I have a story that I tell about the time that Michelle told this story with her daughter. And uh, having it on the podcast is just such a great way to make it realer, to make it not just this this myth of a Toys Told story. Well, Deb, thank you again, as always. Uh, We'll be back in a couple of weeks with another story from one of our live events. See you next time. Confabulation the Podcast is a production of Confabulation, a Canadian nonprofit dedicated to the art of true life storytelling. Our show is produced and edited by Deb Venslet. And of course, thank you as always to our sponsors, the Canada Council for the Arts and the Conseil des Arts de Montréal. <laughs>